Dorsey. Look up the clock. There's only six. Now five. Pull up. Deep three. He baked it in! He baked it in! At the buzz, Oregon's going to win it! The Ducks are going to the final four! 3.6 seconds to make it official. But you can book your tickets. And that's going to do it. Two, one. Final score! Final four! Oh, what a weekend of college basketball. Just wrapped up moments ago with North Carolina eking one out past Kentucky on a Luke May shot. We've got Oregon going to the Final Four for the first time in 78 years. We've got South Carolina going to the Final Four for the first time ever. Gonzaga going to the Final Four for the first time ever. It is the Pacific Northwest against Carolina in the Final Four in Phoenix, Arizona. And welcome to a Final Four edition of the Pacific Rim here on 1029 and 750 The Game. Alongside Greg Peterson, I'm Judah Newby. Find Greg on Twitter at GUnit underscore 81 and dudesonsports.com. I am on the tweet machine at Judah Newby. And Greg, wow, those regional finals, that was something else. That was absolutely something else. And I know we haven't had a pod since last Sunday when we were here live as South Carolina was pulling the upset over Duke. It was a 7-2 South Carolina upset over Duke. A South Carolina squad, Greg, that we both had losing to Marquette. Yep. (laughs) And what they've done is just been exceptional. What Oregon did was just exceptional. What North Carolina, that North Carolina Kentucky game, instant classic. And of course, Gonzaga just really flexing on Xavier in there. So ultimately, what is the biggest takeaway from you from, from the regional finals and going into the final four? It shows once again that there are so many teams that can win the NCAA title. I still remember Jay Billis coming on after the first round of the NCAA tournaments. They were like, all those people had said there are tons of teams that can win the title. Those guys are just idiots. Everyone knows there's only like three or four teams. Well, Jay, what now? I mean, Oregon is in the Final Four. I'm sure he didn't have them. Nobody had South Carolina. I mean, South Carolina came in losing five of their last seven games, lost in the first round of the SEC tournament, and myself and many bracketologists agree. As a seventh seed, they were overseeded. This should be a South Carolina team that has like a, a like a nine in front of their name right now. And here they are in the final four. It is just bonkers. And Oregon making it first time in 78 years. The the way that they beat Kansas, they ultimately beat them by 14. But, Greg, that was not a game in which, uh, as an Oregon fan myself, I, I was feeling very comfortable about. Always anticipating a Kansas comeback in the second half. And for whatever reason, <laughs> Oregon got kind of lucky in the sense that Devontae Graham couldn't hit a shot. And Josh Jackson got in foul trouble. And any time that Kansas tried to put together a run, something would happen. The Ducks would just take it right back from them. You know what this game reminded me of? It was a higher-seeded version of Kansas versus Bucknell. Because in that game, you may recall, there was only one player on Kansas that could hit a hit a shot. That was Trevor Simeon back in the day. And this year... I think it you was, mean Wayne Simeon. Wayne Simeon, yes. Not the Broncos it, quarterback, the former no. KU star. <laughs> not, not the former KU star, but... Or Northwestern star, yes. But uh, rather, let's get back on track here. Frank Mason was the only guy that could hit a shot for Kansas. Everyone else was ice cold. They couldn't hit anything from three in the second half. They hit one three. That was from Mikhail Luke with, I believe, five minutes left. That cut the lead to 66 to 60. They would not score after that. Yeah, that was two and a half minutes to go. Yeah. Yep. They did not score after that. Kansas was ice cold from three. And Oregon, that Tyler Dorsey three with, I believe, like 90 seconds left, something like that. 
That was a dagger. That's when you knew, okay, this game is finally done. And it came after Frank Mason and Josh Jackson came together to get a rebound, and they both ran into one another and couldn't get it. And it went right to Jordan Bell, who seemed he was, he was getting every rebound and block shot in that game, and then Dorsey hit another three at the end of the shot clock buzzer there. And Dorsey, what more can you say about that guy? Mr. March for a reason. Both last March and then again this March. Every big shot that he needs to make, he was making. Take the two for one at the end of the first half, Craig. How often do you see that in college basketball? And he made two insane three-pointers that were kind of lucky. I mean, to have the first one rattle around, hit every part of the the iron in the window and go in, and then the second one, just all, all glass, and he was feeling it. He certainly was, and we were a little bit critical of him during conference play because it felt like Tyler Dorsey during the season was either there or he was Casper the Friendly Ghost. He was getting like six points. But in this tournament, my goodness, he has come up clutch. And what more can we say about Jordan Bell, the guy who was the most outstanding player of the region? And the guy nearly had a triple-double. He had like 11 points, 13 rebounds, 8 blocks. The guy was doing everything. And we all know what the national media was saying. Who's going to step up now that Chris Boucher is out? They're leading shot blockers out. Well, the Ducks answered the bell. Yeah, yeah, that's a... That's a nice little slam dunk of a headline right there. Um, answering the bell, indeed. Bell goes 5 of 6 from the floor, and you mentioned the 11 points, 13 boards, 4 assists, and 8 blocked shots, and that was a big part of this game. The The fact that Kansas tried to get inside, and often they did. Mason was really the only one that could get inside. He had 17 points in the first half, but finished with like 24 for the game. So he was quieted down in the second half a little bit, but... The uh, the fact that, Ma- it, apart from Mason, nobody on Kansas really could do anything inside, and I think they got a little tentative about it because Jordan Bell was in there. Best rim protector they've probably seen all year, and it showed up. And honestly, Bell's best rim protection game all year. Eight blocks against Kansas? Yeah, that, that's the best rim protection game of his career. And this is a Kansas team that took down Baylor twice during the regular season. And keep in mind, Oregon lost to Baylor by like 17 points earlier this year. And ba- I, Baylor, you you mean, has great rim protection. Yes, Joe Lule, Achuil, and Jonathan Mowley. But it was Jordan Bell all by himself that locked him down. Landon Lucas just, I mean, he got a couple rebounds and everything like that, but Landon Lucas just was not enough against Jordan Bell. He ate him for lunch and dinner. Yeah, the... Uh... Looking at Kansas's stats right here, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They had seven offensive rebounds as a team as opposed to nine offensive rebounds for Oregon. Oregon wins the rebounding battle in, in all, 36-32. to 32. Um, Kansas wasn't doing much on the offensive glass. Bell was getting everything, and, and normally that would you would figure that would be an opportunity where Lucas would step up on the offensive glass, but they were denied in this game. And without Chris Boucher, that, that certainly is a statement made by Oregon to be able to win the rebounding battle against the Jayhawks. It certainly is. And like we said, everyone was questioning this team. They've gotten some good contributions from some guys that you wouldn't expect. I mean, even Cavell Bigby-Williams, he hasn't had necessarily the gaudy stat lines or anything like that, but he's given them solid minutes. I mean, every one of the players on this Oregon team has stepped up without Chris Boucher. You really have to tip your head to Oregon. I've been impressed with Dylan Ennis in particular. He made an impact in the first half, and he was a steadying, calming influence in the second half as well. Dylan Brooks did Dylan Brooks things, took Dylan Brooks-type shots, and he was probably Ma- made a handful of them, which are just like, wow, and then missed a handful of them where you're like, well, that's a bad possession. And he was probably the third or be- fourth best player out there on the floor for Oregon, too, and he was playing pretty good himself. And Peyton Pritchard, to his credit, 
he made a nice pass to Bell. He made some nice plays, and this was a very intense, stressful scenario. If I was Dana Altman, I wouldn't have been opposed to playing Casey Benson down the stretch for the rest of that game because he, you trust him a little bit more with the basketball. I mean, best assist to turnover ratio in the country a season ago. He's just more heady. He's more refined. He's more experienced than Pritchard, but Pritchard ended up playing down the stretch and did a fairly decent job. And you got to believe these are the biggest games of his life as well. As a true freshman, I mean, four straight state titles and now going to a Final Four in five years in a row. That's pretty impressive. It really is. And what Peyton Pritchard did, he avoided the bad play. That's mm-hmm. all that they needed from him because you've got Ennis, Brooks, guys, I mean, Bell down low. You've obviously got Tyler Dorsey. They're all making shots. Peyton Pritchard didn't need to score the ball. He knew that he's like, guys, you guys take it. I'll make sure I don't screw this thing up. Every time Kansas seemed like they wanted to get close, they couldn't make a shot. And Devontae Graham going, you know, unable to hit a three-pointer, you just don't see that very often. In a way, Fortune favored the Ducks in this one as well. Certainly. And then Josh Jackson, as we mentioned before, got his second foul of the game like five minutes into it. No, it was two and a half minutes. Two and a half minutes, yeah. Even earlier. So that was not good for them. And he didn't score until there were 11 minutes left in the game. And I think he made two baskets, I'd like to say. He finished three for eight. He got a third. Okay. But, I mean, still, he couldn't do anything. And this is a guy that we were just here like, oh, could he be the possible number one pick after his first couple games of the tournament? And what everyone forgot about Kansas is, while they looked so good in the first three games of the NCAA tournament, this is still the same team that was trailing against Oklahoma by double figures on their home floor and lost to TCU in the conference tournament. And those games... They were played in March. I mean, it's not like that That was ancient history. It's not like that was November. That was this month. Everyone lost sight of that, and Oregon knew, you know what? Those chinks in the armor, they're still out there. Yeah, absolutely, but everybody's got chinks at this point. The, the biggest difference is how well are you playing in the tournament? That's the biggest difference. Even a guy like me, I like to try to take who won their conference tournament and parlay that into NCAA tournament momentum, and we've seen how that's a faulty, that's faulty reasoning. Just because a team was hot in their conference tournament does not equal March Madness NCAA tournament success. And so for a team like Kansas, ultimately it came down to, like, well, what personnel do they have? They've got some of the best personnel in the country. You can't deny that. I mean, the backcourt that they have and Josh Jackson, who just because he had a tough game here does not take away from the fact that he's a top five NBA prospect and pick. He's still that good. This is the outlier for Kansas is what I'm saying. And But I still picked him. You still picked him to lose to Purdue because ultimately we felt like their weaknesses would be exposed at some point down the road. But I got to be honest with you, Greg. After they beat Purdue by 30 points, by 32 points, I was like, hmm, that's a bit of humble pie for me. Maybe Kansas doesn't have the uh, the weaknesses I thought they did. And ultimately, just two days later, it shows up. It's just bizarre how the dynamics of the tournament work. That's why you got to love it, because these are 18 to 22-year-olds. You do not know what you're going to get on a day-in and day-out. And as crazy as it sounds, I actually sucked my guns on Oregon. I had to do a radio hit the next day. I still picked Oregon over Kansas. So oh, yeah. I stuck with I think it. We, yeah, we were, but partially because we knew what the Oregon Ducks had. Even the win over Michigan, it wasn't sexy per, per se, but... They've, per point over Rhode Island. They've found yeah. different ways to grind out victories, and that matters. This is an Oregon team that has won games in every way humanly imaginable this year. You even go back to the Maui Invitational. 
I mean, the game against Tennessee in which Dylan Brooks is coming off the bench and hits that three. And then you got the game, the road trip against California and Stanford. You had the win against UCLA at home. You had the blowout win over Arizona. I mean, they've won close games. They've won medium games. They've won tough games. They had that win over Boise State in which they had to rally. Heck, they got a test against Montana earlier in the year. And this is an Oregon team that has seen it all. And that's the reason why I stuck with them. This team knows how to close. No matter how they have to do it, they're going to get it done. And only five losses on the season to uh, to to uh, back up that point. First Final Four since 1939, which was the first tournament ever held in Evanston, Illinois, the home of Northwestern. It was an eight-team tournament back in 1939. So one victory puts you in the Final Four. And the Ducks ultimately won that thing. They beat Ohio State and were the first NCAA champions. And they got a bye to the Elite Eight. And a bye to the I mean, come on. Like... This is the best basketball season in the history of the Oregon Ducks, and but I can't imagine that it would uh, would have happened without you know the guys that laid the groundwork before. Only two guys leave from last year, and Dwayne Benjamin and Elgin Cook. But uh, even even you know the Ernie Kent Ducks that got to back to back Final Fours, lost to Kansas, lost to Florida. Um, I guess those weren't back to back Final Fours, but they elite were eights. in the uh, or excuse me, back to back elite elite eights. They lost to Aaron Miles's Kansas squad that went to the Final Four. They lost to Joachim Noah, Al Horford, and that Florida squad that went to the uh, Final Four that won back to back national titles as well. I remember as a kid feeling so disappointed and depressed, and then losing the Elite Eight last year to Oklahoma and Buddy Heald like that. Ultimately. You know, I hear it all the time from the Ducks now that that was the motivating factor for them for this year was was remembering Buddy Heald clutch that trophy, remembering their inability to get a damn rebound against the Sooners. Lon Kruger used to coach Dana Altman, and that loss stung with them so bad. The pictures and the videos of Dylan Brooks crying his eyes out in the in the post game locker room. That feeling and emotion stuck with them much stronger than I would have thought, much stronger than I anticipated, and that was a motivating factor for them just to do what, in the words of Dylan Brooks, they took it from Kansas. He said, these are the games you have to grab from the other team, and we took it from Kansas in front of 18,000 Jayhawk fans. I mean, that was a true road game for them, and they took it from them. That, that's so impressive to me. It is, and it shows that not all the stats are how you should be picking your bracket because so many people, if you look at this game on paper, Kansas wins is probably 9 out of 10 times. I mean, I think that's pretty fair to say. If you look at stats and stats alone, if you, you do maybe neutral, maybe neutral site seven out of ten, but in Kansas City, in Kansas nine City, out of ten. Yeah, <laughs> you, they probably win nine out of ten of those games. But what they can attribute is the gap in college basketball between the top teams, the middle teams, and the bottom teams. It has shrunk every single year. And you know what it really comes down to? Those things that you can't find on the stat line. How good is your coach, Dana Altman? He coaches his guys better than anyone else in the country. Dana Altman, I would put him up against anyone else. I've been so impressed by him this year. I mean, I I appreciated him back when I was in Wisconsin and back when I was working in Nashville, Tennessee. Seeing him up close in person, it is so amazing to see what the guy does. He has his team prepared in every way possible. He looks at every element of the game, and these are guys that just fought so hard, and that's what Kansas didn't have. Kansas always craters in the Elite Eight. They always have the better team. They always have the higher seed, and yet they can't get it done because there's someone else on the other side that wants it more, that has his team more fired up, and that's what Dana Altman did. He got his guys up up for the task, and Kansas, they probably thought they were going to walk all over Oregon just like they did Purdue, just like they did Michigan State, just like they did UC Davis. So is Bill Self even in your top 10 coaches in the country because of that indictment? 
I, I still think he's a top 10 coach regular season, but if if I need a coach in the tournament, I'm probably not taking Bill Self. I mean, honestly, you take a look at Bill Self, his shortcomings, Bucknell, Bradley, Northern Iowa, VCU, Stanford, Michigan, Oregon, Villanova last year. The list goes on and on and on. Yeah, that speaks for itself in a lot of ways, and that's got to be a really tough loss for Kansas at at home pretty much. Oh, I I I saw Lawrence Police doing all their tweeting yes, yesterday and some guy That was fantastic. Some guy apparently according to the Lawrence Police tried to pull out a tree out of the ground. Some drunk Kansas fan and his friend according to the Lawrence Police, his friend stopped him before he was successful at doing it. He's like, "It's not the tree's fault, man. It's not the tree's fault that Kansas lost a 14-point game like it was it didn't even come down to the buzzer. It's just incredible." Okay, uh the other game on Saturday Another team that me and you both had in the Final Four, and that is the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Tough, tough game in the regional semifinal with West Virginia. Boy, man, was that a grinded-out game. And Jordan Matthews with that game. clutch three with about a minute remaining yeah. to lift them to victory. Start, let's start there. Let's start there. What would what, you make of the Bulldogs eking one out over Bob Huggins? Man, they could not make free throw in that game. Yeah. I think they were like 16 of 26, 16 of 27 from the free throw line. It was not pretty, but... They just found a way. I mean, Javon Carter really tried to will that one for West Virginia. I actually do radio hits out there in West Virginia. I do one with a station out in Charleston, West Virginia. Good folks, by the way. But, I mean, it was just such a tough game because you could tell that they were not used to the press, but they were able to use their size down low to get some rebounds. I actually think West Virginia did a fairly decent job on the glass, but they were just able to get one more shot in the end. And that's one of those things, just like I was talking about before, Sometimes it's not all about the stats on paper. It's not about all the sabermetrics and everything like that. It's about who wants it more. And Jordan Matthews, a guy who was on Cal's NCAA tournament team last year that lost to Hawaii, he didn't want his career to end. How, and, and this West Virginia team, like I think obviously Gonzaga struggled offensively, but what Gonzaga has done defensively in this tournament has been very impressive. West Virginia was putting up 85-point game after 85-point game. This is the highest-scoring West Virginia team in program history. They they broke Jerry West's team record in the late 50s. Most points scored in, in school history by this West Virginia team. And what was it? To beat Notre Dame, they shot like 60% from the three-point line. They went 5 of 21. From and I think 5 Javon, of 23 from the three-point line in Javon this game. Javon Carter hit like three or four of them, I believe. He went four for nine. Yep. So four of their five made three-pointers came from one guy. That's 21.7%. West Virginia, you know how many field goals they made in this game? No. 16. Oh, wow. 16 for 60. 26.7%. You're telling me that Gonzaga's defense didn't have something to do with that? What the Bulldogs have done defensively, Greg, this is what's the sustainable factor for them going forward because we know they have the skill on offense to overcome a tough shooting night. But it's the defense that Mark Few has instilled, I feel like, that has gotten him to this point, too. And could that's part of the reason we took him to win the title. And you know what? I believe they've got three starters that weren't on the team last year. It might even be four. Williams, I, Goss, and Matthews, and Perkins? No, Perkins was there Perkins last year. Perkins was there last year. Jim Karnowski only played like five games last year right. due to that injury. Right. And Zach Collins is a freshman. And this is a very new team from last year because... They lost the bonus. They lost all those guys. And here they are in the Final Four for the first time ever. If you ask me, Mark Few deserves Coach of the Year for all that he's done. I mean, he's mix and match. He's power five transfers along with a couple of freshmen. 
And he's made this thing into a juggernaut that I still think is going to win the NCAA tournament. I'm sticking to my guns on Gonzaga. I was really impressed with how they played yesterday. I was really impressed by how they played against West Virginia. They just found a way. And like you said, the defense, it's just uncanny. They just find a way each and every time to say, you know what, you do this well, we're going to shut it down. And we're going to shut it down right now. Yeah, 58 points for West Virginia, 59 points for Xavier. I mean, you hold teams under 60 points. We know what they they ended up doing against South Dakota State. They scored 44 points against them. Their score with uh, Vanderbilt is, or excuse me, Northwestern Northwestern is escaping me, 79-73, and that had to take a miraculous second-half comeback from Northwestern to get that many. But three out of the four teams they've played so far, they've held under 60 points, including the regional semifinal and regional final. Um, Quick shout-out, though, what do you think of Xavier's amazing magical, whatever you want to call it, run to the Elite Eight as an 11 seed under Chris Mack. This is a team from mid-February to March lost six straight games and three of their last four wins of the season from January 4th until the NCAA tournament game against DePaul. DePaul had nine wins this season. They don't deserve to have a college basketball team. I could say that because I have a cousin that goes to DePaul. So, I mean, there's that, but... I mean, this was just absolutely incredible. The job Chris Mack did of coaching this team, absolutely sensational. It should go in the history books as one of the most miraculous uh, rallies ever because they were without their leading player, Edmund Sumner, and they had just gotten Trayvon Blewett back from injury. And then even when Trayvon Blewett was completely neutralized in the second half, they had guys like Sean O'Mara stepping up and hitting threes for them. Edmund Gates, I mean, you're just here like, who are these guys and how are they hitting threes? And somehow, someway, they managed to beat Arizona. They absolutely mopped the floor with Florida State, and they had that second half rally against Maryland. I mean, Xavier deserves a lot of credit. We had been bearish on them all year, and we were right up until the NCAA tournament, but this is a team that just wanted it, and they wanted it bad, and they got three wins in the tournament. Big yeah, kudos to them. There's a handful of teams that I'm looking at. Like, I feel good, you feel good, because we had three of the final four, but there are also a handful of teams that I just I was just flat wrong about. Nobody. Xavier, Xavier is one of those teams. South Carolina, obviously, one of those teams. I feel less bad about that one because no one really saw them coming either. I was hating on Kentucky as well and picked them to lose to Wichita State. And while that was a very, very close game, it was a you know it came down to the final possession against Wichita State. Kentucky owned UCLA. They ended up losing to North Carolina. They owned UCLA. Thirty-nine points for De'Aaron Fox. Like, I didn't see that coming. Kentucky was a better team than I gave them credit for, and they went all the way down to the wire with North Carolina as well. It just goes to show you that some of these teams, they, they start playing their best in the NCAA tournament, and that can often be hard to predict given what we've known, up, known about them up to that point. Exactly. That's just the craziness of March, you know. You remember we had that conversation a couple of weeks ago about do conference tournament wins really translate to success in the NCAA tournament? Not so much. I said it was pretty much 50-50. The one stat that's out there is a team that lost their first game in the conference tournament has never gone on to win the NCAA tournament. Unless South Carolina does it this year, which I'll be honest here, I, I that would be a stunner to me. But yeah, I, well, I don't know if I can tell them. Yeah, I, for, I mean, at this I mean, point, they, throw they out are, the history If books. you reseed at this point, they're the four seed. Yes. But you'd probably have they've North, been the other dog this whole time. Yeah, you'd probably have North Carolina's a one, Gonzaga's a two, Oregon has a three, and South Carolina's a four. I think that's very fair. But, I mean, you just take a look at what's happened. It's just crazy. I mean, some of these conference tournament winners, like obviously Gonzaga, well, that's a West Coast conference, but still, I mean, they had a nice run. North Carolina, they lose in the semifinals of their conference tournament. 
South Carolina, they get absolutely blitzed in theirs. Oregon, they made it to the final, but I the day before the final, or the day of the final, I should say, they find out Chris Boucher is no longer going to be with them due to a torn ACL. So, and you just can't predict these things. And then you have some of these teams that they go in there, they win their conference tournament, like a Rhode Island, and they have a nice run. I mean, Michigan has a nice run. And then you got other teams that just flame out in spectacular fashion. It's just Duke. so hard to call. Duke, yes. Unbelievable, man. So, what do you, what is this? Uh, I want to circle back about the Xavier Arizona game because we didn't touch on that quite much yet. But the fact that Xavier came back and won that game, one, this was set up for Arizona, man. Final Four is in Phoenix. They win the Pac 12 tournament. They're feeling good. They look good. And then, I don't know, what, what was more surprising? Arizona playing this way against Xavier or Kansas? playing that way against Oregon. Both of those seemed like major blips that was really hard to see coming. I'm thinking it was Arizona just because did anyone think Xavier was going to make the Elite Eight? I mean, seriously. It seemed like they had maxed out their magic. I thought they maxed out their magic when they beat (laughs) Maryland. Or when they made the (laughs) tournament. Um, How much of the Chris Mack, Sean Miller familiarity do you think played a role in that? I have to think it played quite a big role because, I mean, keep in mind, these two teams played in the NCAA tournament two years ago, and Sean Miller got the best of Xavier, and that was a Xavier team that was actually pretty good that year. I mean, I think that they had a couple draft picks on that team. I think Jalen Reynolds was there, and they had Matt Stainbrook, the guy with the glasses that everyone remembers because he actually worked part-time as an Uber driver as well, so that was a really nice story, but I mean, Arizona absolutely blitzed them in the NCAA tournament. You could tell revenge was on the mind of the Musketeers. And they ultimately get, what does it mean for Sean Miller? Sean Miller, Bill Self, two great, great coaches in their sport that seem to more often than not fall short in the NCAA tournament. What does it tell you about Sean Miller? Now I will say I still am not going to put Sean Miller on the same level of failure as Bill Self. I mean this year was terrible but in the last two times they got to Elite Eight they lost to Wisconsin teams that I mean, Wisconsin's really good. I mean, Wisconsin was a two seed the one year they were a one seed the next so I, I think they've only fallen short as a one seed once. I still remember back when they were at Back when they were in the tournament, I believe it was in 2011, and they played Duke. They managed to get the upset win in that one to go to the Elite Eight. So I'm still not bearish on Sean Miller. If anything, his worst uh, tournament outcome was back in 2012 when they made the NIT and lost in the first round to Bucknell as a one seed. That's not a good look, especially on your home court. But I I still think Sean Miller is a very good coach. And I I feel like Arizona overachieved this year, in all honesty. Because this is an Arizona team that at one point this year had seven scholarship players playing for them. There's like no Power 5 conference teams that have just seven scholarship players suiting up for them. And Sean Miller managed to get that team on a winning streak that lasted like two and a half months before they got blitzed by Oregon. I I still think that Arizona had a nice year and Sean Miller deserves a lot of props. He just fell short in this game. Yeah, and playing without Alonzo Trier for over half the year. 19 games. You yeah, know, that's that's really, really tough. Parker Jackson Cartwright was out with injury too. I mean, he had Kobe Simmons as a freshman playing big minutes for them. For them. And I think that they were supposed to have Terrence Ferguson this year as well. That turned out not to be. Um, Now the other game that I think will be in one shining moment and we will remember this tournament for was that Florida Wisconsin ball game in New York City in the Sweet 16. Greg as a Wisconsin fan, I it's that's such a tough one to swallow. What an amazing finish. What an amazing shot to put it into overtime. And uh what an amazing response by Florida 
in the overtime. What did you make of that? And of all the guys that hit that three for Wisconsin, Zach Showalter. Yeah. And Zach Showalter is like, a defensive stopper. We, you said that last week. You can't expect anything offensively from exactly. him. Exactly. Judging by the form of that shot, there wasn't anything to, uh, to, to question that. That was an odd-looking shot. A runner off your right foot? Like, what is that? He was a walk-on from Germantown, Wisconsin, fifth-year senior, that had pretty much busted his butt to become a defensive stopper for this team. And then, lo and behold, he hits a shot to set the game to overtime. I mean, that was just absolutely insane. I mean, Zach Showalter to do that. And then to lose it in overtime the way that they did on the buzzer three, that pretty much mirrored the shot that Zach Showalter had just hit to send it to overtime. I, the Badgers come back from down 10 with like a minute, minute, minute and a half left. And then Florida comes back from down like six or seven with a minute left. That, by far the signature game of the NCAA tournament so far. I mean, that is all you could handle and then some. Kavon Allen had 35 points in that one, too. Yeah. How about in overtime when both teams combined to score 23 points in the OT? That's a lot of points. That is. And you know what really killed Wisconsin? Free throws. If they hit their free throws, Wisconsin wins that game. But they just they missed too many free throws in the second half. Ethan Happ could not put the biscuit in the basket. Yeah, Nigel Hayes went 7 of 14 from the line. As a team, Wisconsin went 20 for 30. Yeah. If they just hit a couple more free throws, they get that win over Florida. And a lot of people were talking about, oh, the refs were bad and everything like that. Make your free throws. Just hit them. And how about for Florida? Their run ultimately ends with this loss to South Carolina. Um, but to get that win over Wisconsin and go all the way to the Elite Eight in Mike White's first year of making it to the tournament on any level, um, he does. He's he's the man for the job down there in Gainesville. Oh yeah, I was a big fan of his when he was at Louisiana Tech. He got him to like back to back to back twenty five win seasons. They just never got the nod to the NCAA tournament because, unfortunately, in this day and age of college basketball, if you have to win your conference tournament if you're in a smaller conference to make the dance, and they deserve to be in the NCAA tournament. They actually took advantage of their road games, but the committee just won't put them in because the gap between the high major teams and the low major teams in terms of computer numbers is so wide. So, I mean, Michael White had been robbed a couple times of making the NCAA tournament. He gets there this year, and he sets up the first all-SEC Elite Eight game since 1986. That was LSU versus Kentucky when LSU was the 11th seed and made the Final Four. So, I mean, it was really special what he was able to do. I mean, you got to give him credit. And he was without John Egbunu as well for the NCAA tournament, who is their starting forward. This has been a tournament for Sundarius Thornwell, man. I mean, he is a man among boys. And to be honest, so is Frank Martin as a head coach. Not in the sense that uh, Frank Martin is the best coach in college basketball, but... And that you talk about Dana Altman getting the most out of his guys. I mean, Frank Martin has been doing that in South Carolina during this tournament as well. A seven seed that we thought they were overseeded, but the way that they play defense and have grinded out win after win after win and just kept this thing going, it would it would have been so easy for them to hang their hat on that Duke win and then not being able to get it done in the uh, regional semifinal and the regional final. And instead, they've they're going to the final four, man, South Carolina. I would love to find the laziest man man in America and have Frank Martin give him a pep talk because <laughs> that man would then become motivated. I mean, Frank Martin, what he's doing with his team is nothing short of exceptional. 
I still remember his time at Kansas State. He got them to an Elite Eight. I still remember the only time you really saw emotion from Frank Martin before this tournament was when Jacob Pullen had his career ended by Wisconsin, and he just stood up, and he pretty much defended his guy. You could tell just how much the players love playing for Frank Martin. I mean, what he's doing, it's good for college basketball. I mean, it really is. The guy is... The guy used to be a Miami bar bouncer, I believe. Yeah. He was a bouncer at a nightclub. He used to be a janitor. He worked so many different odd, odd jobs. I think he was in landscaping for a while. I mean, Frank Martin has been all over the universe, and now here he is coaching a team in the Final Four that legitimately got overseeded. I mean, it's nothing short of exceptional. It's a great story. It's this year's Syracuse of a team that got either overseeded or just put in the tournament that didn't... This They would have been in the tournament. South but, Carolina yeah. would have been in, right, but... but um, certainly overseeded based on their resume and then went all the way to the Final Four anyway. It's incredible, man. It is just... And what about Sundarius Thornwell? Oh, man. I mean, the two stars that have really come out of this NCAA tournament so far, Jordan Bell, I mean, he's helped his draft stock immensely. And so has Sundarius Thornwell. I mean, I was saying it with South Carolina even during Selection Sunday. The reason why I had South Carolina so low is because they lost a couple games out of conference because Sundarius Thornwell was suspended. I mean, they lost to Memphis, they lost to Seton Hall, and they lost to Clemson while he was suspended for, I believe, seven or eight games uh, due to some sort of off-the-court thing. It was just an indefinite suspension. Frank Martin wouldn't say why, and that's typical Frank Martin style. But, I mean, because of that, it looked like South Carolina was a little bit of a different team when they when he came back. Now, they were obviously scuffling towards the end of the year, but you're seeing Dwayne Notice, P.J. Dozier, I mean, Silva down low. I mean, everyone's just playing Mm. like men possessed for them right now. Yeah, they felt the urgency, the desperation. 26 more points for Thornwell in this one. 8 of 13 from the floor, 9 of 10 from the foul line. He's currently the NCAA tournament's leading scorer. Um, Yeah, Thornwell, he's just been putting them on on their back. And when this game was in flux, the last five minutes of the game or so, keep in mind, South Carolina was down 7 at halftime. They ended up coming back. It's tied with five minutes left. It's tied with three minutes left. Florida goes up by a couple points late, and then South Carolina takes it away from them in the last three minutes, and Thornwell was a big reason why. How much of that, Greg? I mean, it's in the last few minutes of a game. When it's winning time, you got to have the dudes with the onions to come up big for you. Oregon has those dudes. South Carolina and Thornwell and the guys on the supporting cast has those dudes. Gonzaga has those dudes, and ultimately North Carolina's got those dudes as well. Exactly. And it is, you mentioned Team of Destiny to me off air so many times. I mean, South Carolina trailed by seven at one point against Marquette. They had a seven point deficit that they had to overcome against Duke. They trailed by seven at the half today against Florida. They are a seven seed. Team of Destiny. A lot of sevens in there. What that means for the final four? I don't really know. But but we what is it? Each of the last five years now. A team seeded seven or lower has made the final four. Five and, years in a row. And three of the last four, a seven seed on the nose has made the final four. From 1982 to 2013, zero seven seeds made the final four. All right, say that again. From 1982 to 2013, zero seven seeds made the final four. The That's last, a 31-year stretch. Yep. The last one to do it was 1981, a Virginia team led by Ralph Sampson. And then since 2013, I know Michigan's made it as Michigan a seven. Michigan State, yep. You had UConn or, that made that magical run, and now South Carolina. Unbelievable. That's crazy. Seven seed, man. Sometimes it doesn't hurt to be on that line. Not, I, I not recently, so. that's for sure. <laughs> not recently. All right, and then the last game of the day that I wrapped up about an hour ago, North Carolina and Kentucky. Whoa. 
I mean, what a finish. Kentucky was a better team than I gave them credit for. I have to say that. I did not think that they would be able to beat UCLA, and they handled UCLA, Greg, first of all. was Is Kentucky a better team than you thought they were? I do think so. I mean, like you had it, I had Wichita State winning too, and it was a close game, but right. at the end of that Wichita State game, Wichita State couldn't even get off a shot. I In that last possession, they couldn't even get off a shot. That was how good Kentucky was playing yeah, on defense. Malik Monk and Bam Adebayo, back-to-back blocks to win that one. And then against UCLA, they just completely pulverized them in the second half. UCLA was shooting the lights out, but yet because they were forcing turnovers and they had such good motion offense going on, UCLA couldn't climb their way back into it. They completely neutralized Lonzo Ball. Ball had one of his worst games of the year because De'Aaron Fox was facing him up, and then on the offensive end, he was just taking his lunch money from him. I mean, it was just absolutely insane what they did against UCLA. And then again today, it looked like North Carolina was going to run and hide with it. Then Kentucky makes that big run. They get the lead before uh, North Carolina switches up their defense. Can't say enough about how good how good of a showing this was for Kentucky. I mean, with Isaac Humphreys, of all guys, stepping up and having a career high. Yeah, that was unbelievable. De'Aaron Fox's performance against UCLA, 39 points. I didn't think he had that in him. Malik Monk only had 21 points, 4 for 9, only had 21, 4 for 9 from 3-point range. I will say this, though. Malik Monk actually did struggle in the NCAA tournament a bit. It was De'Aaron Fox that really put the team on his back. Absolutely. And then in this game against North Carolina, Malik Monk with 12 points, uh, to to mention for your struggles, but down the stretch, he has two crazy 3-pointers to try to pull out a miracle for Kentucky in that one. What did you make of the finish between UNC and Kentucky? It was fantastic. That final sequence, I mean, Kentucky hits the three to tie it. And then on the other end, you have the May jumper by Luke May, who is also becoming a household name for this tournament. It's the guys you just don't expect. I mean, Luke May in that game against Butler had a career high in the first half. And I think he had his career high before then was 12. I think he had 14 in the first half against Butler. He had double figures again today. I mean, it's just, it's why you love March. I mean, household names get made in March just because of a couple games in which they catch complete fire and they want it more than everyone else there on the court. And up to that point, it was Isaac Humphreys for Kentucky, no? Exactly, yes. Isaac Humphreys, a career high today. It was just spectacular to see in a day of one-and-done players, these guys that are completely unheralded step up and give their teams just such good production. It was Phil Booth for Nova in the championship game last year and for then the Phil, first half. And then Phil Booth this year really didn't make much of an impact for Villanova. It was just one of those times where he's where it was his time. It was Stanford for Rhode Island. A career high for that kid off the bench in a second rounder against Oregon. Who knows? Maybe I don't even remember his first name. Stanford Robinson. Stanford Robinson. <laughs> I remember Unbelievable. Him because, the only reason why I remember him is because he is a transfer from Indiana. Right. So, I mean. And he's got the name, first name of another D1 school. Like <laughs> That's why I remember Stanford Robinson. Best game of the year for him against Oregon. You know what? Like, that means Unbelievable. That, watch. And now Cavell Bigby-Williams is going to go off for like 30 against North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's within the realm of possibility in the sense that we, the things you don't expect always seem to happen. So predicting the unexpected, it's a fool's errand, but it's why we do it anyway. And look, not too bad. Three out of four Final Four teams. None of ESPN's 25 analysts could say that. Myself and Judah, we did it. Yeah. Uh, well, and look, I've been the most attention I ever have to a college baseball, regular college basketball regular season because of doing this podcast with you, Greg. So it is a little bit of osmosis there. 
without a doubt. I don't think it was an accident. And you have North Carolina and Gonzaga in the title and Gonzaga winning? Yes, sir. Yeah, so that's we, we both have that. I think that was uh, not an accident. Um, in the Final Four now, you mentioned if you reseed, it's probably Gonzaga, then North Carolina, then Oregon, then... Um, than South, South Carolina. Carolina. I think a lot of people, though, would argue that UNC would be the number one overall seed I, over Gonzaga. I did have North Carolina number one and Gonzaga number two. Oh, you do? Yep. Okay. Um, yeah. It's going to be the Carolina schools against two Pacific Northwest schools. Just big picture. That's how we're going to remember this Final Four. And as a Pacific, Pacific Northwest native my entire life, that makes me pretty proud. And if the Pacific Northwest does fall, could you imagine a North Carolina versus South Carolina final? I mean, who saw that coming? North Carolina versus South Carolina title game, Oregon Zaga versus Oregon title game. We've all wanted that Oregon versus Gonzaga game for so long. We're two wins away <laughs> from that happening. We were joking about it a couple weeks ago on air. It's like, boy, wouldn't it be nice if like Gonzaga and Oregon square up the NCAA tournament? We might get it. We might get it. All right, we're going to do one. Uh, we are going to do a podcast um, you're going to do a podcast solo by yourself this week to discuss some of this coaching turnover. And among those, I'm sure you're going to talk about Archie Miller to Indiana and Steve Alford staying at UCLA, but there's been a lot of coaching turnover. You know, a lot of these guys, you've talked to them, you've texted with them, you've called them, you've been talking about them on national radio. So at some point this week, Greg, you're going to hop on here. You're going to knock out a coaching carousel, uh, national li- landscape. I'm sure there's stuff going on in the NIT that I'm not aware of. The CBI, the College Insider yeah. Tournament. There's no Vegas 16 this year, which makes me sad, but there were only eight teams in the Vegas 16 to begin with. So Every, that. everything in coaching movement and on the uh, college basketball periphery, Greg, you'll be doing a podcast on that. And then how about we get together one more time before the Final Four and just do an epic preview on that? I like it. He is Greg Peterson at GUnit underscore 81. I'm at Judah Newby. Congrats, Greg. Three of the four Final Four teams you called. You did too. And I'll take that. I'll, I'll take that. I haven't checked to see where I'm at in some of my tournament challenges, but I imagine it's I pretty, bet if your friends good. took your picks, they're probably really happy with you right now. I would hope so. All right. This is the Pacific Rim. We'll see you all again a couple more times this week. Oregon is in the Final Four for the first time in 78 years. They will play North Carolina at 549 p.m. out here on the West Coast on Saturday. The one to precede it, South Carolina and uh, Gonzaga at 309 out here on the West Coast. It's the Pacific Northwest against the Carolinas in the Final Four. We'll see you next week.